This is exciting. We've got a great message. Taylor is going to be talking about our impact, our influence in, uh, in the world where we are not um, set up, as he says, to flourish. That where the odds might be against us, but yet we can really flourish. And Will Barker, come on up and you're going to read the text for us this morning. And then you're going to pass it off to uh, Taylor as he brings a word how we make the greatest impact in culture today. And this is an important message, so let's listen up. Good morning. First Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right. Thank you, Will, um, for reading our text. Let's see if I can navigate the booby traps over here. Safely done. All right. Um, that's God's word for us this morning, written by a human author, the Apostle Peter, in his own language and style and context to a specific people. Uh, and yet it's inspired by the Spirit of God, and every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now, prepare our own hearts, and invite God to speak to us as we take a look at this text and the flow of thought that comes from it. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we love you, and uh, we're so grateful for your grace grateful that you speak, that you have something to say to every single one of us. You love every one of us. You know us even better than we know ourselves, and you invite us into relationship with you. You invite us to know you, and you've made yourself present with us. We praise you for that. Let's just take a moment right now, and in the quiet of our own heart, with whatever words make sense, take a moment to pause and to ask God to speak to us personally. So uh, whatever words, maybe it's just as simple as saying, God, would you speak? Um, but let's just take a moment to, to ask him uh, as individuals personally to, to speak to us. God, we pray that you'd give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts. And we thank you that we can come to you honestly and openly not hiding anything because we know that your grace covers us and um, we can put to practice what you tell us in Hebrews chapter 4 to come before the throne of grace with confidence for in receiving mercy uh, in our time of need. We pray for that. Uh, we love you. Uh, we pray, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, my old football coaches used to call it situational awareness. So it's knowing what is going on in the game, where you are in the game, where you are in the field, the circumstances of the game in which you are playing. Now, caveat, in preacher school they tell you never to use a sports illustration, especially a very specific sports illustration about a specific experience in a sport because it's a very niche illustration, right? As soon as I start talking about football, or I could talk about golf, I could talk about swimming, whatever. 
Half the audience, at least, is gone, right? You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. The terms you're using don't make any sense to me. I have no personal experience with what you're talking about. And so they tell you not to do it. However, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm like, whatever. Let's throw caution in the wind. I'm going to use a football illustration. Or, you know, for those of you maybe uh, who are less interested, Taylor Swift's boyfriend is getting together with his friends, and he's playing a game, and they're putting it on TV today. Okay, there we go. I'm using a football illustration. Especially on defense, coaches will coach you up on knowing the circumstances of the game, the sit knowing your situation. How far does the opposing team have to go to get a first down? In football, you have, to, you have four tries to go 10 yards. Most teams only go three, then they punt if they don't get it. So knowing how many tries they have left, how many downs they have left to get a first down, how far they have to go, where you are on the field, what plays they're likely to run as a result. And that shapes the way that you approach the game, especially as a defensive player. And so uh, if you know that they need, they have one try left and they have to go one down left and they got, got to get 12 yards, well, you're prepared for a type of play that has to get them 12 yards. You're not really interested. You don't really care if they get five yards. That does nothing for them. You have to stop them from getting 12 yards. And so you prepare. You have to be ready for anything, but you're anticipating that most likely they're going to run a play that's designed to get them 12 yards or more. If they're on the goal line, they're about to score. They've got, they've got one yard to get in the end zone and score a touchdown. You need to be prepared to stopping them from getting one yard. They're not going to try to throw the ball 15 yards down the field because there's no 15 yards down the field to go. They're trying to get one yard. And that changes the way you approach the game. Changes everything down to the minutia of your very stance. If you're a defensive back, you're, one of your main responsibilities is to cover wide receivers in the passing game so that they don't catch a pass and don't complete a pass. And you know they've got to get 12 yards. It's very likely they're going to throw a pass to a receiver 12 yards or deeper into the field. Your stance is ready to get back to stop them from getting anything more than 12 yards. You're not loaded up trying to get things in front of you. You're trying to make sure they don't get behind you. If you're a defensive lineman and you're on the goal line and your job is to make sure that you don't get blown off the line of scrimmage, pushed back so that they can get one yard into the end zone, and you have to stop them from getting that one yard, you're loaded up going forward. You're going to do everything you can. Your stance is ready to be lower than the offensive lineman that's trying to block you, to be underneath them, and you're not going to get pushed back. Knowing the situation changes the way that you approach the game down to the details of your very stance. Why do I bring this up? because I want to reminisce on the glory days and I'm bored? No, um, although maybe. Uh, glory days are long, long, long past, sadly. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a long time ago. Uh, I don't bring this up just to reminisce on the glory days. I have a point. The point's a question. What situation are we as followers of Jesus living in and how should we approach our stance? Put another way, what world are we living in and how should followers of Jesus approach that world? If our situation, knowing our situation, dictates what to expect and how to approach it, what world are we living in, and how should followers of Jesus approach that world? Some of us here may not yet be followers of Jesus. Thrilled that you're here. We want this to be a community where people from all walks in a journey of towards faith and with faith, exploring, can, be, can uh, feel safe to explore the message of Jesus together. And so maybe the, the question for you would be something like, what resources does life with Jesus have for the real world anyway, beyond just what we do in a Sunday like this? What does it even mean for life beyond stuff like this? For all of us, it's the, the question is, what world are we living in, and how should followers of Jesus approach that world? Now, 
we are living, the world we're living in, a text like this shows us, and, and indeed the whole narrative of the arc of scripture shows us, that we are living in what many Christian thinkers have called the already and the not yet. The language of our passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is he calls his readers and us by extension sojourners in exiles. The Christian story shows us that uh, we are living in a world that was created good, that's fallen uh, into in be less than it was meant to be, but that the kingdom of God is breaking in in Jesus. And Jesus has already begun that kingdom project. The king has already come. The, the God the son has already entered into human history to reveal the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God and doing for us what we could not have done for ourselves when he hung on the cross carrying my sin and your sin, dying in our place, rising in victory as the down payment, the first fruits of the coming renewal of all things where we're going to be raised with him in a renewed creation where sin and death and injustice are undone in life as it was always meant to be forever. But right now, the kingdom has begun, but it's not yet all the way here. We live in what people have called the already and the not yet. I love the way that the historian Wayne Meeks puts it when he describes the way that Christians have historically approached the world. He says this, Christian life is life at the same time in the old world that's passing away and in the new world that is coming. Life at the same time and the old world that's passing away and in the new world that is coming. Our stance then is that we live as citizens in the kingdom of God, making our home in a place that is not yet all the way the kingdom of God. It's life at the same time in two worlds. One author called it an amphibian life, a life living at home in two different environments. We're frog people. We live between two worlds. We live in the already and the not yet. We're sojourners and exiles, citizens of another kingdom, making our home in this kingdom. And that shift of awareness, knowing the situation we're in, should shift our stance. It should change everything about the way that we navigate the real world about our day-to-day, -day, not just in the way that we think about life in our gathered settings, but the way that we think about life in our scattered life, the way that we think about what it means to go out with friends and build a career and change diapers and parent kids and build relationships with neighbors and coworkers and family, the way that we think about what we do in the day-to-day, -day. it's shaped by knowing that we live in the already and the not yet. So the question is, how? What does it mean to live as sojourners and exiles? And our text that we're looking at today, these two verses that we're reading, and then a, a, about a chapter that flows after it is a, a flow of thought where the Apostle Peter is giving us this vision for life as sojourners and exiles, people who live as citizens of the kingdom of God and the already and the not yet. And he's applying that to several arenas that his original readers would have lived out their lives. But there's some unique circumstances of those arenas. Each one of them, he's going to walk through life in, in, as residents of the Roman Empire. He's going to address people who are living as indentured servants, bond servants. He's going to address wives whose husbands are not yet followers of Jesus. And then at the end, he, he tacks on husbands as well. But the first three are all three uh, in which followers of Jesus could uh, expect to be mistreated, arenas where they could expect to be mistreated. There are arenas where they had very little power to change their circumstances. And there are arenas that were not set up for their flourishing as followers of Jesus. 
So what does it mean to navigate those real world arenas that aren't just rainbows and butterflies, life is set up for you to flourish, but how do you navigate it? And then I think he intentionally throws on husbands at the end as a contrast to a situation where you had relatively more freedom. So what do you do with that as a follower of Jesus? And rather than look at each one of these arenas and try and draw a parallel to our modern day situation, what I want to do is I want to look at the through lines. What are, what are the themes that the Apostle Peter is weaving into each of these situations as he's helping, he's coaching, he's pastoring through the, uh, his, his readers through life in the real world as sojourners and exiles? And that's what we're going to do. I, I'll say, too, before we, we dive into it, that um, several of these passages, particularly um, what Peter has to say to indentured servants and what Peter has to say to wives whose husbands are not yet followers of Jesus, in the history of the church, there have been times and places where these passages have been really disgustingly misused. And there have been times where it's been used to justify really heinous things. It's been, it's been used uh, to, uh, in a really abusive way to convince women to stay in abusive situations that Jesus is not asking them to stay in. What I want to say is I want to acknowledge that. Um, we're not going to work through in detail through each of these passages, and there's so, there's so much that we're leaving on the table. But what I want to say is that there, there's something that God is t- calling us to that is, that is very different than maybe some of the ways that these passages have been wrongly used in the past, and that the heart of it is not to convince people to stay in abusive or bad situations. It's to show people what it looks like to live as an exile, a, a citizen of the already but not yet kingdom of God in the real world. And so, with all that said... Let's dive into what I think the Spirit of God wants to show us in shifting our stance towards how we navigate the day-to-day realities of life as citizens in the kingdom of God and the already and the not yet. Here's a handful of shifts. The first shift that I think that, um, that the Apostle Peter is coaching us through here is the shift from thinking about personal goodness to goodness for the good of others. We think about what it means to navigate the real world as a sojourner and exile. It's a shift from personal goodness to goodness for the good of others. We read this passage uh, that's the launching passage for kind of this whole section, verses 11 and 12. And he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he goes on to say that live in such a way that the world around you, the life in the the empire that is not set up for your flourishing, that folks would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. There's this emphasis on goodness, on living with goodness. And so as he he translates that into several of these uh, arenas and institutions, he talks about how followers of Jesus are to relate to the empire. And he says, he uses the, the language in verse 15 of doing good, in an empire that is not set up for your flourishing. He talks about bond servants, indentured servants, suffering under unjust masters, and he talks about even in that situation to do good on on wives whose uh, husbands are not yet followers of Jesus. And you can imagine in that setting, in that cultural context, where there's way less freedom, way less power, far more patriarchal than anything in our context, he talks about doing good even in a context that's not set up for your flourishing. Now that seems straightforward enough, But I think we need a refresh of our imagination of what goodness in the kingdom of God means, about what the way of Jesus instructs us to do when we think about doing good. 
Because I, I would imagine that in the, the types of circles, that the, the, in, in many of um, the Christian environments that we might be familiar with, and even just maybe the default of what we assume goodness means, we tend to think of personal morality. Especially, we tend to think of abstaining from a, a short list of vices. You know, there's the old fundamentalist saying, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And I guess it only applies to men, because it's, I don't know, whatever. But... Um, <laughs> We tend to think of, what does it mean to do good? Well, it means to abstain from bad things. It means to abstain from self-destructive behavior. And it's not less than that. Surely, we read through scripture and we see a vision of this way of life that includes personal morality. It includes self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But when we talk about letting our good deeds shine before the world, I think we have such a small imagination of what that means. I think what the, what the Apostle Peter is showing us here is it's not just about abstain from some unhealthy behaviors, abstain from some vices. Again, not less than that, but he's tapping into a much fuller and richer vision of what it means to do good. Because here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 23. He's uh, critiquing uh, the, the uh, Bible-believing religious folks of the day who were very focused on the minutia of religious observance. And he actually says, your commitment to wanting to be religiously observant, that's not bad, but you're missing the most important things. Here's what he says. He says, uh, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So they're very obsessed with like, even down to their spice rack, they're making sure they're generous with their spice rack, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what does Jesus says, what does Jesus say are the weightier matters of life in his kingdom? It's justice and mercy and faithfulness. Goodness, doing good, is not just personal morality in the sense of abstaining from a short list of bad things. It's goodness for the good of others. It's justice in the world. It's mercy in the world. It's faithfulness. It's a commitment to see this world become everything that God designed it to be. It's a commitment to good for the good of others. And I wonder if our thoughts about what constitutes doing good have been watered down and tamed and domesticated out from the radical countercultural vision of life that Jesus envisions for his people. A life of doing good for the good of others. Not merely personal morality, although not less than that. But participation in God's kingdom, redemptive, restorative plan for the world. A life committed to justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what would the South Bay look like if God's people were people who were committed to doing good for the good of others? Um, Tim Keller was a pastor who passed away a couple years ago, planted a church uh, in the late 80s, early 90s in Manhattan um, called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And one of his uh, points of vision for their church community that has deeply marked me is he said it like this. He said, I want us to be the type of community that regardless of whether or not people agreed or disagreed with what we believed in, that if everyone in our church family got up and left, the city would miss us. That we would live in such a way that if all of us got up and left, the city would miss us. 
Are we living in such a way that if all of us got up and left, the South Bay would miss us? Are we living in such a way that unleashes good into the South Bay? And this is what the earliest followers of Jesus were known for. When they presented the goodness of the good news of Jesus, they presented Christ died and resurrected. They also presented a countercultural way of life. The Greek thinker Aristides, uh, he's an Athenian, he, um, he, he wrote a letter kind of like to the Roman Empire, and he's addressing, uh, addressing the emperor. I doubt the emperor ever wrote it, but uh, ever read it. But um, he, he, he basically made a case for why Christians were good for the empire, even though they refused to worship the emperor. And here's what he said. Uh, he said, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. If they see an immigrant, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. And then he concludes with saying, and see, because of them, good flows on in the world. Oh, that that would be true of us. Oh, that that would be true of everyone who follows Jesus in our time and place. Oh, that that would be true of the church everywhere, that we would be those that the world would look at and say, see, because of them, good flows on in the world. There are so many incredible things that people in our community have been committed to that are part of this kingdom mission, and it's worth celebrating. And I could, I mean, I hesitate to even name some examples because it it, it would leave people out because there's so many wonderful things, but there's these incredible projects that aren't just the programmatic efforts of the church, but the church living scattered and committed to wonderful things. I think about what the Mensingers have done to rally people in our community towards serving the unhoused folks in and around Skid Row with the LA mission, and how that is good flowing on in the world. I think about the Valjeans and what they've been committed to with Acres of Love and serving uh, orphans in South Africa. I think about uh, Julian, what, you, what Holler, what, what, what you do with Mike Keating and others in uh, rallying folks to care for Navy SEALs who are transitioning into civilian life and need some traction to run on to do it in a healthy way. I think of all these wonderful things, large and small, ways that people take steps of faith with a coworker or with a friend or with a neighbor, not in some uh, organized effort, but just small ways that we participate in the kingdom of God, going from uh, just personal goodness only to thinking of goodness for the good of others. And oh, that we'd have still more. Oh, that we'd be a community who really gets it deep down in our bones that life with Jesus is not this small, restrictive list of things to avoid, but it's so much more. It's a countercultural, revolutionary way of bringing good of the kingdom of God into the world or to shift from just personal goodness to goodness for the good of others. That's one shift we see here. Another is shift from demonizing to giving honor. Uh, in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, um, the, the Apostle Peter calls his readers to have our conduct among the Gentiles be honorable. Does the, the specific word he uses is honorable. It's a, it's a way of life that gives and displays honor. And, and, and he goes on to kind of tease that theme out in each of these arenas he addresses. And he, and he, and he says in uh, verse 17 when he's talking about how they should relate to the Roman Empire keep talking about the Roman Empire as if I'm just, you know, basic bro thinking about the Roman Empire. That's, that's a joke for like five people. Anyway, but um, very online group of five people. Anyway, um, they lived in the Roman Empire. So there you go. Um, here's what he says about how they relate to the empire. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. Now the emperor demanded to be worshipped as a deity. And in fact, the Christians uh, over the, the first couple centuries of the church got themselves in quite a bit of trouble because they refused to worship the emperor. They said, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. 
And while everyone else in the MPP had no problem, like, oh, well, I don't know if we believe this or not, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll give some lip service, we'll offer some incense at the, at, the, at the imperial cult, temple, whatever, who cares? We'll just do it because we got to do it. The Christians refused. And yet, Peter says, don't worship the emperor, but honor him. Honor the emperor. Uh, on, uh, on bond servants suffering under unjust masters, he says to treat them with respect. Even, even dirtbags, dirtbag masters, treat them with respect, he says. Uh, and, he, and he goes on to talk about um, how, how Christian wives should uh, interact with their husbands that aren't yet followers of Jesus, particularly in that, uh, that context where, they, where there was very little freedom and much more patriarchal context than we're, we're accustomed to. He says to, that the conduct is to be respectful. Christian husbands to their wives. I mean, imagine, again, a misogynistic, patriarchal cultural context. The crux of how a Christian husband is to treat his wife, it says, show honor. That's the center of his instructions to Christian husbands in a world where that was foreign, is to show honor, to treat them as, uh, as co-heirs with Christ, equals. The theme that he's teasing out through and through is show honor. Now, the air we breathe in, in our time and our place, not so different from any other time and time and place, but highlighted in specific ways, the air we breathe is an air of dishonor, not honor, across lines of disagreement. Uh, if um, you peruse YouTube, um, look out uh, a, a discussion, like a lecture with a Q&A or a debate, anything like that, uh, especially when the person giving the lecture or in the debate is a popular pundit or public intellectual or something like that, you're going to see a, a pretty consistent formula for how these things are titled in many circles. There's a formula that goes like this. So-and-so owns so-and-so. So-and-so shuts down so-and-so. So-and-so schools so-and-so. Am I the only one with an algorithm that shows him these kinds of things? Am I I'm making myself a little vulnerable here? Okay. So-and-so owns so-and-so. So some of you know how it goes. It goes, so-and-so owns bigoted redneck. So-and-so owns woke college student. So-and-so owns college professor. There's a formula, and it's clickbait, but there's a reason that the bait works. It's because we live in a moment where we love to see people we disagree with publicly shamed. We love to see people we disagree with owned air we breathe in our cultural moment is an air of dishonor, not honor. We demonize. But followers of Jesus living as exiles are to be those who go from dishonor and demonization to showing honor. We're to be those who reject the temptation to own or shut down people we disagree with. We're to reject the temptation to be entertained by someone else owning or shutting down someone we disagree with. We're to reject the temptation to celebrate leaders who have a leadership posture that owns or shut down the people that they disagree with. We're to be people who give radical countercultural honor in lines of disagreement. We're to be those who give dignity and respect. And imagine what it would be like if followers of Jesus in the South Bay lived in such a way that we had an earned reputation of showing honor to people with whom we disagreed. Imagine the trust it would build. Imagine the community it would build. Imagine the mutual learning it would build and the expanding of our worldview that it would build. But imagine the witness it would give to Jesus, who though we were his enemies, honored us by becoming one of us and becoming one of us to the point of death on the cross. 
And I'm not just talking about, well, I'm a respectful person. Of course I'm a respectful person. Mean, we all think of ourselves as like respectful people, right? Unless you're like, you know, intentionally punk rock or whatever. We think of ourselves as respectful people. I'm not merely talking about being respectful. I'm talking about what if the specific people in our lives with whom we had disagreement actually thought of us as proactively honoring them. They actually thought, I don't agree with that person, but I feel really honored by them. I don't, I don't, I don't buy what they believe. I don't, I don't buy their perspective on the world, but they really honor me. They really respect me. They really listen to me. They really ask sincere questions of me. They really want to know what I have to say. And when they express disagreement, it's in a way that doesn't make me feel less than. What if we were those who showed honor? It's a shift from demonizing to giving honor. Another shift here that's really prominent as Peter weaves these themes of, of exile in the real world through these various institutions and circumstances of, of their day. He says that there's a shift, or I would see here a shift from hope in the immediate to hope in the eternal. Um, he talks about um, the, the kind of backdrop to all this in verse 12, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's, that's the backdrop, when they speak of you as evildoers, implication, this is a group of people who are being misunderstood, mistreated, uh, and spoken about wrongly, sp being spoken of as evildoers. There's this backdrop of, um, of enduring mistreatment on, on how um, Christians relate to the empire. This is what he says in verse 15. He says they're followers of Jesus are to do good in response to the ignorance of foolish people. So again, being uh, spoken of wrongly, being mistreated. On indentured servants, bond servants, with unjust masters, the call in verse 19 is, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is not to say that one should never seek to improve one's situation. It's not, and it's definitely not an endorsement of the institution itself. But Peter's saying, in circumstances where there really is no option to change one's, to change one's circumstances, it's gracious when you, endure, when you endure that environment graciously mindful of God. And on and on it goes. Each arena has, a, has the subtext of being mistreated. So the question is, if the call is to endure in those kinds of circumstances, Endure when circumstances are not set up for flourishing. Endure when circumstances are circumstances that no one would choose. How can we possibly do good in the face of being mistreated or misthought of or misunderstood? How can we possibly patiently endure in the face of injustice even as we seek to undo that injustice? How can we possibly do it? And the implication is that there's a, a call to shift from hoping in the immediate primarily to hoping in the eternal. Because when our hope is in the immediate, when we think that um, all there is, or at least the most important thing, even if we would, we, would never, we would never say intellectually that all there is is this life and our circumstances in this life, but if we live functionally, as if the most important thing is our circumstances and what happens in this life, what we accomplish, what we build, the relationships we have, our circumstances. 
if we put our hope in the immediate, it leaves us with very shallow resources for enduring suffering. Because if our hope is what happens today, tomorrow, in the immediate, and today, tomorrow, even longer term than that, is not what we would choose, what hope is there? We've missed it. Life was supposed to be better. And we missed out. But if our hope is in a bigger story, if we find our lives in the bigger story of what God is doing, not just in our lives, but beyond, and that it's a story that ends with redemption and reconciliation and the restoration of all things, that the story has a happy ending, that even as we endure circumstances that we would never choose, there's hope in something bigger. There's resources to endure. And that doesn't take away the pain of injustice, the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of loss and heartbreak. It doesn't take away the pain of any of it. But it changes the way we endure it. It changes the meaning that we can find in it. And so we're to be those who shift from, in, from hoping in the immediate to hoping in the eternal. Paul Brand was a surgeon who um, spent the, the first half of his career, more than that even, uh, in a very low-income area of India. So practicing medicine in a very low-income area of India. And then at the end of his career, he moved back to the United States, uh, I believe the Pacific Northwest. And he wrote a memoir. Um, it's kind of chronicling his life, but then also his experiences and the culture shift of going from serving in a low-income area of India to serving in a relatively affluent area of the United States and reflecting on what it was like to practice medicine in both, in both environments. Here's what he observed about one of the key differences that he saw in his patients. And, he, and this is not with any judgment, just as an observation. He said, patients in the U.S. lived at a greater comfort level than, I had previous, than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Why? Because they're a bunch of snowflakes? No, because their source of hope was in a different place. Hope in the immediate, primarily in the immediate versus hope in some bigger story, finding ourselves a part of a bigger story. And we're to be those who make that shift. And finally, we'll close with this. We see an invitation to a shift from anxious rule-keeping to internalizing the love of God in Christ. You know, as we're just reading through a passage like this, uh, and, and as we're teasing out the implications here, uh, there's a very high call to action. There's an invitation to a radically different kind of life than the status quo. There's an invitation to go far beyond just the regular South Bay script for the good life. There's an invitation to an, a new way of following Jesus. And it's tempting to hear something like that and to translate into thinking, here are a list of rules that I must follow. And if I don't follow these rules, if I don't live up to this standard, then I failed I've let down God, and I haven't been enough. But listen to the way the Apostle Peter gives resources, gives motivation for why we should live in this way, specifically as he's addressing indentured servants. He says in verse 21 of chapter 2, endure, and then he says for, or because, in verse 21, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, that's Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin with him and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why does the Apostle Peter invite us into this kind of life? How does he say we can live this kind of life? By seeing a list of rules and anxiously striving to follow them? No. He says you can live this way. You can live as an exile in the already and the not yet because Jesus has already done for you what you couldn't have done for yourself. Because God and Christ has already come to you. He's given an example, yes, but so much more. He's done for you on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin, taking it into himself in the tree, to use the language of Peter, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds have healed us. He's already done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. He's already demonstrated the full extent of the love of God for us when God the Son entered into human history became one of us, lived a life that none of us have lived and went to the cross taking on my sin and your sin, crushing, being crushed under it and rising in victory on our behalf as the first fruits of a new kind of life. But what we see in that is to use the language of Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not invited to this new way of life as a list of rules to attain to. We're invited to this new way of life because God has already demonstrated the extent to which he would go to prove his love for us. We already have all of him. And in having him and experiencing the self-giving love of God in Jesus, it teaches us to live a new way. It shapes us to live a new way, not as a list of rules to follow, although there is a way, but in being transformed by the loving presence of God himself that he's brought in Christ. We're to be go, those who go from anxious rule following to internalizing the love of God in Christ and letting it change everything. And it's as we experience that love, it's as we come over and over again to see what God has done for us on the cross, that we already have all of him, that the great barrier that stood between us and him, he's broken down in his body on the cross, and that he's raised to life as a first fruit of what we, our life will be and what the kind of life that he's working out in us. As we come over and over again to that, it changes everything. Because in it, we experience God himself. We experience a God who created the universe, who's sovereign over all, against whom we've lived as if we were his enemies each in our own way, and yet who loves us unconditionally and is radically committed to being with us. And it's in that we're transformed. And so we're going to close here. I'll invite Ben, the, the team, can come back up. And I'm just going to give us a moment as they set up just to sit and to be and to reflect. A passage like this can just be a fire hose of ideas and information. But we come to the text to experience God, to learn to be taught, but in it, to be brought to his presence. And so right now, I'm just going to invite us just for a moment of quiet. Just to ask God, is there anything that, that we just looked at that was from me? Is there anything that I need to hear? And then we'll pray to close, and we'll, we'll close with worship as a way of um, celebrating together and connecting with our heart the things that we've learned in our heads. 
So let's, um, let's just have a moment with God right now. Lord, would you speak to us? If there's anything that any, any one of us need to hear, myself included, um, would you speak? So we pray, come Holy Spirit. by that reality. At the end of the day, following you in the day-to-day is about experiencing you. It's about knowing you, and sometimes we're going to feel that feel you as so present and close. Otherwise, we're just going to be caught up in our to-do list and, and maybe even in the experienced reality of your presence will we'll feel less real. But we know you are real with us. And we pray that we'd be a people marked by your presence and that we would live um, as we were always meant to live as a result, not because we're striving to earn something from you, but because we know we already have you. And in having you, we're being changed. God, I pray for um, the South Bay love these people and you love this place. You love your church, but you, you love the whole South Bay. And I thank you for all the ways that your people are, are involved in what you want to do here. But we pray, God, that you would give us even greater vision. Would you spark an even bigger imagination? And maybe that's in really small ways, but we pray that we'd invite you into every space. And uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Not the end we could have known 
For the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What sacrifice was made As the heavens roared All hail King Jesus All hail the Lord of heaven and earth All hail King Jesus Flash of light breaking through And all was lost, he crossed eternity Hey, the king of life was on the move For in a dark cold tomb For in a dark cold tomb Where our Lord was laid One miraculous breath who will forever change all hail King Jesus all hail the Lord of heaven and earth all hail King Jesus
Savior of the world. So let every knee come bow before the King of Kings. Let every tongue confess that He is Lord. Lift up your shout. Let us join with all of heaven singing, oh, oh, holy. Just sing that out to Him. We cry, Father, holy, we cry, holy, all hail King Jesus, thank you for this time we just ask that you would continue to bless us that you would just press this word into our hearts yeah keep the knowledge of your son in our hearts father yeah we ask that you would just bless our week bless our time together today keep us safe on the roads father love you, Jesus. We worship you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.